you drink. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. If it's been a while since you've thumbed through your New Testament, it's Matthew, first book, Mark, second book. Chapter numbers are the big numbers, verse numbers are the little numbers. So we're starting in Mark 6, verse 14. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved that he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles, Spanish coins, in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and made me determined to give the rest of the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. Well, these are the words of Benjamin Franklin, one of our nation's founding fathers, and he's describing what it was like to sit under the preaching of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a traveling evangelist that the Lord used mightily during the Second Great Awakening. Through the preaching of George Whitfield, thousands and thousands of people came to know and to worship Jesus Christ. But not Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. He was a deist of sorts. You don't have to know what that is, you should just know that it's not a Christian. Oftentimes, when Franklin would carry on correspondence with Whitfield through letters, he would refer to Jesus Christ as your master, not mine. You see, Franklin was a student of discourse, rhetoric. He was an avid fan of oratory, and Whitfield was quite the dramatist. He was perplexed by much of what Whitfield preached, but he was also stimulated, stimulated by it. He was entertained by it. He was also a fan of the virtues that could be elicited in a society that would frequently hear the preaching of Christian values and virtues. But he wasn't a believer in the Jesus of those preachings. He was a fan of Whitfield the dramatist, but he was a skeptic of the main star of the drama, Jesus Christ himself. You see, Franklin was an admirer, not a believer. The same phenomenon is at play in today's account from the Gospel of Mark. We see a man, Herod Antipas, and he admires John the Baptist, but nothing more. Mark tells us that Herod was greatly perplexed by John and what John preached, but also that he heard him gladly. So how does it happen to be then that at the end of the story, Herod Antipas serves John the Baptist's head on a platter to his daughter-in-law. Well, let's start reading it together and we will find out. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. 
Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of the old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. We pray that you would use it to bless our lives this morning to the service of you. Amen. Well, I bet you didn't know that the Bible has a flashback in it, but it does. And the story that we are reading today is basically a flashback. Today's story of John the Baptist's execution is a flashback given to us by Mark to help us explain something else. Namely, the reason why Herod was so paranoid about Jesus. You see, the fame of Jesus' ministry up to this point in Mark has not been significant. But now, it's beginning to spread and it's filling over the banks and the backwaters of Galilee up into the upper echelons of society. Whenever a prophet would begin to gain momentum, or gain popularity, it would scare the ruler of the land. Well, what's going to happen? Is he going to raise up? Is there going to be an uprising? Is there going to be a rebellion in the land against my rule? That would make the leader nervous. But Herod is more nervous than a ruler would typically be in his situation. You see, there were two theories kind of floating around about who Jesus was. Theory number one, was that he was Elijah, reincarnate, an Old Testament prophet. The Jews of the day were expecting a Messiah, someone to come and save them from Rome and its occupation and from all their sins. And they thought that perhaps Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, would reincarnate as that Messiah. And so some people, as they heard of Jesus and what he was doing, they thought maybe he's Elijah. 
Well, then there was another party. Another party thought perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnate. They thought perhaps John the Baptist had come back from the dead. They were saying, all these miracles that Jesus is doing, it's obviously from God and not from Satan. And so maybe God raised John the Baptist up from the dead so that he could do these mighty powers. Well, that explains why Herod was so nervous. Because he was part of the second party. He believed that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead and was now doing all these miraculous deeds. And so he believed that the man that he had cruelly put to death was back and stronger than ever. Pretty scary. Verse 16 reads, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So you can see why Herod would be nervous. But it's here that, John, that Mark gives us the flashback into the story of how John the Baptist was killed. So with all that in mind, I have three questions that I'd like for us to ask ourselves this morning and ask of the text. Question number one, why does John the Baptist have to die? Why does John the Baptist have to die? Question number two, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? And then question number three, what does any of this have to do with me? So let's start with question number one. What, why does John the Baptist die? And the first reason is because John was simply carrying out his role as a prophet. He, like the prophets who came before him and the prophets who would come after him, communicated the truth of God to God's people. Now sometimes we think about prophets as if they're kind of like these mystic fortune tellers as if they just simply read the future. But the truth is, more often than not, especially in your Old Testament, prophets didn't tell the future in so much as they just kind of re-communicated that which God had already communicated. And they did so in order to call God's people to repentance, to bring them back to himself. But prophets had another role in ancient Israel, and it was that of being the conscience of the king. We see this most clearly in 2 Samuel, the story where David sins with Bathsheba and kills Bathsheba's husband. And so the Lord sends Nathan to creatively rebuke David with a story. Apparently, David's conscience wasn't pricked at all about his sin that he had committed against Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. But when Nathan went and communicated his story, David was convicted. His conscience was pricked. And so he repented of his sins and turned back to God. Sometimes we think about the conscience like Jiminy Cricket, always in Pinocchio's ear. And while that image isn't perfect, it certainly does help us understand how a prophet fun would function in ancient Israel. Now, unfortunately for these prophets, sinners do not like to be told the truth about their sin. I don't like it, you don't like it, and we're Christians. People do not like to be told the truth about their sin. So more often than not, these prophets would die for telling the king the truth about his sin. In today's account with John the Baptist, we see that John is acting as the conscience of the king in the land, Herod Antipas, by telling him the truth about his sinful marriage. Verse 18 reads, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And you'll notice later as Mark comments on it, he does not say Herod's wife. He says the wife of Herod's brother. 
You see, Herod was the son of another Herod. Everybody in the story has Herod in their name somewhere, so try to stick with me as I explain this. There was a Herod family, and the patriarch of that family was Herod the Great. He was the king of the kings. And then he had many wives, and through those many wives he had many sons. One of the sons that he had was Herod Antipas, the ruler that we have in today's story. But another one of Herod's sons was Herod Philip. And Herod Philip had a wife named Herodias. See, there's Herods all over the place. Herodias. And when Herod Antipas laid eyes on Herodias, he saw something that he wanted, and it was his brother's wife. Now, for the Herod family, this is nothing out of the ordinary. Their lives were full of soap opera-like drama as the world turns in ancient Palestine. Incest and decadence were the norm, not the exception. So when Herod Antipas began to serve as Tetrarch over Galilee, I imagine that he didn't expect that his greatest opposition was going to be moral more than it was political. He didn't expect that John was going to be in his ear rebuking him. But little did he know that John the prophet could not simply let the king's actions go unrebuked. But in like manner, Herod could not simply let John's rebuke go unpunished. Herod, because of his strange fascination and curiosity with John the Baptist, and also because in some measure he knew that John the Baptist was a holy and a righteous man, he didn't kill John the Baptist immediately, as would probably be the case in those days. But rather, he merely imprisons him. Verse 20 tells us that John's imprisonment wasn't only a punishment, but it was also in some measure meant to keep John safe. We read, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Before moving on, we should probably stop, take a side moment to consider what John the Baptist's critique of the secular ruler Herod has to do with us today. Some people who critique the government look to this passage as kind of their green light to attack whatever ruler may be in charge at that time. I'm not going to give you the direct answer as to whether or not this verse will get you there. I simply want to give you a couple of points to help you think through matters from the Bible. Pray for the Spirit to lead you and guide you as you think through these principles for yourself. The first principle is this. You are not a prophet. You are not a prophet. The office of prophet has closed in the Bible. But even if you think that the office of prophet has not closed and you're all about prophets, I would encourage you to be slow to consider yourself to be a prophet. You see, prophets communicate on behalf of God. A prophet has the authority to say, Thus saith the Lord. And for someone to say, Thus saith the Lord they better be sure that what they are saying is actually from God himself and not just from the back of their own mind. So, before you begin to see yourself kind of in the vein of John, just remember, you are not a prophet. It's pretty likely. Number two, as we read in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Christ, we don't really see the apostles getting involved in civilian affairs. There were great evils in the Roman Empire and great evils, especially amongst the rulers of Rome. And yet you don't see Paul or James or Peter 
stepping up to rebuke them for their great evils. You do see Paul clinging to his right as a Roman when he goes to trial, but you don't really see them critiquing the government. It's almost as if there's been a shift in their thinking from the old covenant to the new, since the time before Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection to the time after Christ. And then the final point we should consider is this. The Lord no longer uses prophets to communicate his character to the world. He uses the church. I pray that you would think through those and consider them as you wrestle with this matter. But in summary, John did what prophets do. He called sin, sin. He acted as the conscience of the king. One author says it like this. He did not read the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interest groups, nor did he predicate what he said on his chances of success. And for this, John the Baptist died. The second reason why John the Baptist had to die was because Herod's sin took him where he did not want to go. Because Herod's sin took him where he did not want to go. As we saw earlier, brothers and sisters, Herod didn't want to kill John. He had no desire to kill John. But he certainly did want to silence him. But because he was amused with John and intrigued by John, and because he saw something obviously holy and righteous in John, he didn't want to kill John. He had an appropriate level of fear and respect for the prophet, even if he had to silence him for political expediency. But Herod's sins led him to a place that he did not want to go. The very first sin that led Herod down this path was his lust. Like Eve in the garden, the first time that Herod laid eyes on the wife of his brother, he saw something that was a delight to the eyes, even though he thought he could not lay hold of it. Herod was well aware of the consequences of the sins of laying hold of your brother's wife. Just like I imagine Eve was well aware of the consequences of her sin, God had clearly told her, do not eat of this tree, lest you die. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, I imagine that Herod didn't anticipate the full-orbed consequences of his sin. You see, sin leaves all of us short-sighted. Even if we are willing to kind of calculate the cost, and we say, I've calculated the cost of my sin, and I'm willing to absorb that, the truth is, none of us, even the best chess masters among us, are wise enough to anticipate the full consequences of our sin. We cannot fully understand the collateral damage of the mistakes that we're going to make as we prepare to make them. And to think that we can is foolish. All sin has a butterfly effect. Verse 26 says that Herod was exceedingly sorry to have to execute John the Baptist. In the same way that I'm sure that Adam and Eve were exceedingly sorry when they were cast out of the garden. In the same way that I'm sure you and I, when we've been found out in our sin, and we see the collateral damage of our sin, are exceedingly sorry. For Herod, beheading John the Baptist was not the end of the consequences of his lust. You see, in order to marry, marry Herodias, or Herodias, he actually had to divorce his own wife. And his wife was no common street woman. His wife was the daughter of King Eratos, 
and King Eratos was the ruler of Nabatea. Obviously, that means nothing to us today, but back then it was kind of a big deal. And so, not only did he have to steal his brother's wife, but he also had to divorce his own wife. And so, King Eratos, as soon as he got the chance in AD 36, crushed Herod Antipas in war. Do you think Herod anticipated that when he first laid eyes on his brother's wife? Do you think he fully anticipated what his life would be like in that first glimpse of lust? Three years after he was crushed in war, Herod Antipas was basically banished to Gaul by the emperor Caligula to live the rest of his life in shame. Do you think Herod thought when he first laid eyes on his brother's wife that that's how he was going to end the rest of his life? Exiled to Gaul in political shame with no one and nothing. Do you think that you can anticipate the full collateral damage of your sin? Sleeping with someone other than your husband before you were married might have seemed harmless as a teenager, but now it might be bearing bad fruit in your life as you try to enjoy normal marital intimacy. Perhaps as a young single man, you think that pornography is not harming you. It won't hurt anyone other than yourself. But if that's how you're thinking, you should know that millions and millions of people who are not even Christians are speaking up about the deleterious effect, the damaging effect of watching pornography. The way that it inhibits and suppresses and encourages the wrong kind of desires in their marriages once they actually get married. It prevents them from enjoying normal, healthy, sexual relationships with their significant others. Moreover, you should know that pornography is the single most influential factor in global sex trafficking. You think it's harmless as you sit in the dark and click your mouse. What we should know is with every click of your mouse, you are clicking a negative feedback loop that tells sex traffickers the world over that they are in business because you are watching. The unknown and the unknowable consequences of our sins run deep. But this isn't the only way that Herod's lust impacted him. You see, it was Herod's lust that led him to have his daughter-in-law dance lewdly for him and for this party that he was throwing. It was the fervency of his lust as he laid eyes on his daughter-in-law that led him to make an oath to give his daughter-in-law whatever she wanted. But Herod's not the only one. You would be surprised to see what people give up for their lust. Or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. Maybe you know of women and men who walk away from their children and their marriages to pursue their lust. Maybe you know people who've emptied their bank accounts. Maybe you know people who have lost careers over it. It happens with politicians like every other year. Right now, one of Hollywood's major figures is watching his world come crashing down around him because he was consumed by what the Apostle Paul calls the passions of the flesh. Because he was carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the destruction that lust can and will have on your life if it goes unchecked. Ultimately, 
Herod was not simply in danger of losing his kingdom or straining family relations. But ultimately, Herod was in danger of losing his soul. The loss of these earthly things for Herod is designed by God to merely be a foretaste of the loss that awaits him in eternity. The destruction that he experienced at the hand of his brother and of his father-in-law is only a foretaste of the destruction that was waiting for Herod when he died and faced a God who would render a perfect judgment on his sins. I don't want you to walk away from the sermon thinking, okay, I got it, Sean. Great point. Thanks, Pastor. I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to commit these sins because they're going to cause problems in my life and in my marriage and maybe with my bank accounts or my job. All of that's true. But the problem is an eternal problem. The danger that you're in is an eternal danger. What does it matter if your life is good here and now if you die and go to hell? The two other sins that led Herod down a path that he didn't want to go were his desire for popularity and his fear of man. You see, these two things are actually opposite sides of the same coin. Desiring to be populous, fearing, popular, fearing man. And they both involve us thinking more about other people and ourselves than we think about God. Regarding popularity, Herod did not just invite anyone to his party. He invited all the important people. Verse 21 tells us that the banquet was for the nobles, for the military leaders, for the commanders and the men of Galilee. These were the movers and the shakers. These were the cool guys in the it club. These were people who were part of the inner circle of the day and of the time and the place. These are the people that Herod ascribed most value and most worth to. And the banquet is just one big look-at-me party for Herod. One big opportunity for him to show off. But in one last final effort to impress his guests, he makes a grandiose promise to the entertainment for the evening, his daughter-in-law, saying that he'll give her whatever she wants up to half his kingdom. But not only was it grandiose, if this promise is to be taken literally, it's simply not true. Tetrarchs were people who simply owned a fourth of the kingdom. And under Roman rule, they couldn't give away more than a small fraction of their land. So, if it was literal, it wasn't true. If it wasn't literal, it was grandiose and eloquent, but it was basically meaningless. Herod promising to give over half his land reminds me of Uncle Rico saying that he can throw a ball over the mountains. If it's literal, it's wrong. If it's figurative, it's wrong. But popularity is a terrible God to live for. If you live for it, you'll die for it. And if you'll live for it, and if you'll die for it, you might even kill for it. Herod's daughter-in-law requests John the Baptist's head on a platter. And now Herod must do something that he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to do it. Well, actually, he doesn't have to do it, but like all of us, Herod has competing desires. On the one hand, he sees John as a righteous and a holy man, and he's kind of amused by his preaching, and he's happy to have him alive. He desires to keep him that way. But on the other hand, he has an even stronger desire, and that desire is to be liked by men. 
It's the desire to be respected, to be popular. It's the desire not to experience shame or lose face. Perhaps you've never considered what people would go through to be popular. But if you went through high school, you might have some idea. Maybe you were the kid who was trying way too hard to be cool, and you would do anything to be accepted by the cool kids. But if you weren't that kid, and you were cool because you weren't trying to be cool, maybe you knew the other kid who was trying to be cool. If that sort of thing isn't corrected in adolescence, we have no reason to believe that it won't just continue right on in, into adulthood. And I think we see that it does. People who are like that as children, if they go into politics, well now in politics, they want to be in with the movers and shakers politically. They want to be a part of the group that has their name on the recent bill that's going to be passed and get all the coverage on C-SPAN. If you're into art, you want to be in with the cool art crowd, the one who gets their stuff shown in the super secret gallery that only really rich and cool people are invited to. If you're into theology, then you want to be around the John Pipers and the Mark Devers and the R.C. Sproles, and you want to get in with that crowd, and you'll go to surprising lengths to make that happen. Parents, I would encourage you to take time with your children to teach them about the vanity of popularity and the fleeting nature of it. You can be popular one minute, and you will be the black sheep the next. So teach your children not to seek popularity with the world, but to seek acceptance with God through repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Teach them to ground their identity in the fact that they're created in the image and likeness of God, not in what they're wearing or what they're saying or who they're around. And we should take every opportunity to teach our children that earthly popularity will profit them nothing eternal. Teach them, as one author put it, to break the desire to be a part of the inner circle or the desire will break you. And the desire certainly broke Herod. And his evil desires won out over his righteous desires. But remember, Herod simply doesn't want to be popular. He also fears losing his popularity. He fears what others will say about him, what they'll think about him. In summary, he fears man. And he fears man more than he fears God. Even if he can't articulate it, he knows in some way that John is heavenly. And in verse 20, we see that the knowledge of this caused Herod to fear John. But Herod's fear of man was greater than Herod's fear of John and his fear of heaven. What about us? In what ways are we fearing man more than we're fearing God? In the life of this church, maybe you're afraid to have that conversation with their brother and sister, a hard conversation that you need to have. Maybe you think you'll offend them and they won't like you anymore. Maybe you're afraid to confess your sins because you're afraid that people will think that you're a sinner. We're all sinners. This is a place for sinners. Save sinners, but sinners nonetheless. Quit fearing what people will think about you and just tell the truth about yourself. God knows already. Most of us know you well enough to know that you're a sinner too. You're not going to shock us when you tell us that you've sinned. What you might do is earn more respect for your ability to be transparent and to pursue holiness in the life of this church. Perhaps you're afraid to admit that you were wrong because admitting that you're wrong might mean that the people around you 
don't think that you're as smart as you would like them to think that you are. Well, the course of these events reveal to us that Herod was an idol worshiper. And his idols were people and influence and respect and popularity and his own lust. Now his idolatry did not involve things made of wood or stone, but it's idolatry nonetheless. Herod's idols were sex and money and power and fame. Sex, money, power, fame. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Isn't it funny how little things change over time? The materials of idolatry may change, but idolatry still lives in the hearts of man the same way that it did 2,000 years ago, ever since the fall. We still live for things that cannot satisfy us ultimately, things that are fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow. And in Herod's life, we see the clear inversion of the gospel, the clear opposite of the gospel. In Herod's life, we see a man willing to sacrifice everything and everyone in order to obtain and maintain his own desires. But in Christ, we see a man willing to sacrifice his own desires in obedience to the will of the Father. Herod was willing to sacrifice everything for his earthly pleasures, but Christ was willing to sacrifice his earthly pleasures for what the author of Hebrews calls the joy that was set before him. Herod was willing to shed innocent and holy blood to satisfy his own flesh. But Christ allowed his righteous blood to be shed by unholy men to satisfy his father. Herod's idols are our idols in some way. You see, an idol is anything that you think that you can't live without. What do you think that you can't live without? Think about that for a moment. What's the thing that you said, if I lost this, life would not be worth living? Well, whatever that is, friend, you found your God. You found the thing that you live for. What would lead you to suppress your righteous desires, like Herod, and act on your evil desires? What would lead you to subordinate the fear of man to the fear of God? Or in reverse of that, fear of God to fear of man. If you're a Christian, whenever you find what that thing is in your life, and most of us have them, we should do what God commands his people to do with idols. We should smash them. If you're not a Christian, when you do identify that thing that you can't live without, you found the thing that you're living for. And you'll, you will have found the thing that you would die for. And you will have found the thing that perhaps, like Herod, you would kill for. And when you find that, you find the God that you truly worship. Question number two. What does this have to do with Jesus? If you were here last week, or any of the weeks before that, you remember my sermon from the beginning of the book of Mark, how I talked about John the Baptist being a forerunner of Jesus Christ. We look at John the Baptist and his life and ministry, we get hints and clues and shadows about Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry. Well, let's go back to that for a moment. You see, in John's death, which we read about today, we see a shadow of the coming death of Jesus Christ. 
It's a foreshadow in the story, cluing us into what's yet to come. As Russell Berger says it, John, a prophet of God, was put to death by reluctant political leaders under the pressure of those most convicted by their sin. And that's just like Jesus. John was put to death by a reluctant political leader, Herod Antipas, because people were convicted by their sin, namely Herod and his wife. Jesus, in the same way, was put to death by King Agrippa and Herod uh, because they were under conviction, because the Pharisees were under conviction of their sin from what Jesus was saying. Excuse me, Pilate is what I meant to say earlier. John told Herod, Antipas, and his wife Herodias the truth about their sin. And that brought conviction. And like we said earlier, sinners don't like conviction. I don't know if you've ever watched vampire movies, but the vampires live peacefully in the shadows, in the dark, until a ray of light hits them. And when the light hits them, their skin begins to sizzle and pop. So when they're exposed to the sunlight and to the searing pain of exposure to that light, they begin to retreat into the darkness. Well, the same is true of sinful man as he is and we are exposed to God's holy light. Herod experienced this. He experienced the searing of God's holy light. But his reverence for John the Baptist, his respect for him, led him to not immediately kill John the Baptist, but keep him safe. But Herodias, his now illegitimate wife, she felt no such reverence, and she wanted John's blood. One author says that she could only carry on in her marriage peacefully by seeing her marriage certificate written in the blood of John the Baptist. And so she uses her authority over her daughter poorly to demand his head. Well, the same phenomenon is seen in the death of Jesus, as the Pharisees are exposed to the light of Christ's holiness. And they can't recede far enough back into the shadows to escape that light. So like a dog backed into a corner, they attack the light. And as you read the book of Mark, you see again, time and time again, they plotted to kill Jesus. They plotted to blot out the light with darkness. And then they finally succeeded. Maybe you think that you would be different if you were in that situation. If Jesus or John the Baptist exposed your sins, maybe you think you wouldn't fight back against the light, attack the light. Maybe you think that you wouldn't cut a man's head off or put Jesus, the Son of God, to death. But friends, you should know that every single one of us, apart from the grace of God, are more than capable of committing such atrocities. I wonder when you read stories like this, or when you read about the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, or when you read about Peter's denial of Jesus Christ by the fireside, I wonder how you see yourself in that story. Do you see yourself as the hero in the story? Or as the sinner? I hope you know that you're not the hero of the story. Apart from God's work in our lives, we are not capable of doing the best that we can do. And most of us are entirely capable of doing the vile things that we self-righteously render judgments on in the pages of Scripture. We think that we're better than Herod. 
But apart from Christ's saving work, we are not. Many years ago as a young Christian, I had a desire to be a pastor. And thank God he didn't let me do that for a very long time. But I would see other pastors, and I would see them fall in their ministry. They would commit some sin that would disqualify them from being a pastor. And I would judge them. I would judge them vocally sometimes, or I would just judge them in my heart. But I would judge them nonetheless. How could you? Get it together, man. You're a pastor. Come on. That's your wife. How could you do that to her? What were you thinking? I acted like that and thought like that until I became addicted to pornography myself. And as I spiraled down into this dark sexual sin, it hit me that I was just as capable of committing grievous sins as the next man. For the first time in my life, it hit me that I was actually capable of cheating on my wife. Before I thought something like that I could never do. Then I began to see myself as capable of committing even worse sins if God did not help me. For the first time I began to see myself as the villain of the story. More than I began to see myself as the hero of the story. As a result of this change of perspective, I began to pray differently. Rather than saying, Lord, please help that jerk over there who cheated on his wife, I started saying, Lord, please help this jerk right here to not cheat on his wife. Protect me from the power of Satan. Protect me from the influence of this sinful and fallen world. Protect me from the dangers of my own heart. And preserve me and preserve my marriage. And preserve me in my ministry. But it took a change of self-perception for me to even begin to pray like that. So I hope this morning as you read this story, if you are judging Herod, or as you read any story and you judge the, the failures of those in the story, I pray that you would begin to see yourself more as the villain than the hero. It's only by sharing in the shame of our sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross that we can participate in the glory of his resurrection. But back to John and Jesus. You see, John laid his life down in obedience to the will of the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But that's not the end of the story because after Jesus died, his mission and his message was taken up by the apostles who also laid their lives down in obedience to the Father. Which leads us to our third and final question this morning, which is, what does this have to do with me? Last week's sermon was all about sending out his disciples on their first mission. Next week's sermon is going to be all about the disciples coming back from their first mission. And in between those, we find this story sandwiched in. Why is it put here? Well, I think one of the reasons is because it's meant to show us something about the cost of being sent out by Jesus. It's meant to teach us something about the cost of discipleship. The disciples' mission is a dangerous one. Jesus tells us that as disciples, we go out as sheep amongst the wolves. Most prophets of God are beaten, thrown into holes, or murdered. John was... Jesus was, all the apostles were, the same authority that they had has been given to us as disciples of Jesus Christ, what makes us think that we will not have to lay our lives down in the same way? Now, in America, we may, may, our, we may lay our lives down in a way that doesn't look 
the way that it looked for them. But we will still be called to lay down our time, our talents, our treasures, our comforts, our popularity for the sake of following Jesus Christ. We are called to give our whole selves to Jesus Christ in the same way that these men were. None of our time, talent, treasures, or anything else belong to us anymore. They belong to Jesus Christ. Even if we won't be killed for telling the truth to the world, we will still be hated. That's what the world does. The world, when it's dead and lost in sin, it hates the truth. Truth says there are such things as boys and there are such things as girls. The world hates that and attacks it. Truth says we all need help from a Savior outside of ourselves. The world says, no, that's not true. I can do everything myself, and it hates it, and it attacks it. Christ came into the world to lovingly tell it the truth about himself. And the first thing that the world did was kill him. It did not take long. But you should know that killing the messenger of the truth does not kill the truth itself. Killing John the Baptist did not stop the message of John the Baptist from going forward. As soon as John the Baptist died, Jesus picked right where he left off and said, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When the Pharisees and the governors conspired together and killed Jesus Christ, his disciples picked up right where Jesus left off and began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. After the disciples were killed by Roman rulers and mobs and they were stoned to death, the churches that they planted picked right up where they left off and preached, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God is at hand. 2,000 years later, I'm standing in this pulpit telling every single one of you with as much earnestness as I can conjure up in my human flesh, repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God is at hand. At times it has seemed like Satan could stamp out the message of the gospel. It seems like the fire had died. But the truth is God kept embers alive all along the way. This year we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, a time when God took that little ember that was dying under the ash heap of Catholicism and he blew life into it until it became a roaring gospel fire. It's the reason why we have the true gospel today. And we thank God for men like Hugh Latimer, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndale, and more, who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, who were willing to count their lives as worthless, as nothing for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And only true belief can lead us to imitate John and to imitate Jesus Christ in laying down our lives for that which matters eternally. Only a converted heart is willing to die for the gospel. An unconverted man would rather kill someone than die for him, or even die to himself. Herod was not willing to die to himself, not even a little bit, because he was just an admirer of the truth. He was not a believer in it. Do you remember George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin from the beginning of the sermon? Well, Benjamin Franklin was an admirer of Whitfield. He didn't believe in the gospel that Whitfield preached. If you're here this morning 
and you are simply an admirer of Jesus Christ, you should know that admiration is not enough. Admiration will not save us. Jesus is not merely a teacher to be listened to and to be admired. He doesn't care if you think his teaching to be pithy. Jesus doesn't care if you think his rhetoric to be wise. He's unconcerned if you think his oratory to be masterful. Jesus is a master to be obeyed. He is a king to be submitted to. He is a Lord that demands nothing less from his subject than every last ounce of faithfulness. And he is a father to be loved. friend, you should know that you do not have an unsympathetic high priest. As Christ calls us to give all of ourselves to him, he doesn't do so unsympathetically. He gave all of himself for us, showing us the way, giving us an example of what it looks like to pour everything out in the service of the will of the Father. None of us will ever give as much as Christ gave. And none of us will ever know the loss that Christ suffered on the cross. But like Christ, we can endure the cost of discipleship for the sake of the joy that's set before us. So may we, as we depart today, not be like Herod and his wife, illegitimate wife, Herodias, who were willing to sacrifice everything and everyone but themselves to preserve their earthly joy. Rather, may we be like Christ willing to count all earthly joy as lost for the sake of the eternal joy that we have with the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect and good and true. And I pray that as it was communicated this morning, that you would use it in the hearts of those who heard it. Amen. All right, Spencer and Amber, please come up. So this morning,